Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. One of the most gifted men to ever stand behind the sacred desk is Larry Smith. He preached this message at God's Bible School and College back in 1993. It's a little bit difficult to hear because of the low quality of the recording, but I know you'll enjoy it. It's titled, The Means of Grace. It is indeed my delight to be here this evening. I see many familiar faces. I feel rather awed as well as deeply humbled to be the opening speaker of this convention. I don't know how you feel, but if you were here in my place, you would feel the same way I feel. I sit on this platform and I think, what in the world am I here? What in the name of sense am I doing here? What do I have to say? And I don't have anything to say unless the Lord God shall speak to us. But then he has promised, hasn't he? And he has said, go, and I shall go with you. And he has promised that we did not have to do his work in our own strength. And his name be praised. We don't have to do his work alone. So I trust that you will pray tonight that the Holy Spirit of God shall be pleased to speak as... We try to say something upon the assigned subject that will be of value to us. Would you stand, if you would please? I'm only reading two verses of scripture tonight. From the second chapter of the book of Acts, verses 41 and 42. This immediately follows the account of the wonderful events on the day of Pentecost. Then, Acts 2, 41 and 2, Then they that gladly received the word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. May God add his blessing tonight on the reading of these verses of Scripture. Will you bow your heads in prayer? Our Father and our God, we deeply realize our own lack of anything, of any virtue of our own, but we do know that all our help is promised from heaven and so, Lord, tonight we lift up our hearts to Thee, asking that Thou will be pleased to do what we cannot do for ourselves. 
Thou wilt speak to us tonight. May the Holy Spirit breathe upon the word. May my own heart be touched and anointed. The deliverance of the message tonight be freighted with a sense of divine glory. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. We pray that thou shalt bless everyone here tonight. We pray, Lord, that thou wilt minister grace to us as we wait upon thee now in the means of grace which thou hast appointed. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our blessed Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Wesleyan themes for contemporary times. That is, of course, the general topic that has been assigned for this entire convention. And it's extremely appropriate because everywhere there is a search for the restoration of historic foundations, not merely in the desire to unearth ancient antiquities and somehow build a museum of quaint religious history, but somehow that we may find where we have been and what we are so far as our historic roots are concerned. I think this is especially appropriate on this historic campus. I said to Brother, uh, Brother Sankey a while ago, I almost have a mystical feeling when I come upon these grounds, when I realize the rich history, the tradition and the heritage of God's Bible school and the faithful witness that it has borne now for nearly a century. And I realize that you know that it was men and women of Wesleyan faith, of Wesleyan heritage and Wesleyan conviction that brought this campus here a century nearly now ago. And I'm talking to men and women tonight who I believe are committed to the Wesleyan heritage. I certainly am no expert in the area, but I am deeply attracted to the nobility and the splendor of the great noble overarching system of historic Wesleyanism, of which, of course, we are the heirs. It is not that John Wesley, as someone has said, said the last word, nor that he said the first word so far as Scripture is concerned. But as someone said, we believe that what John Wesley said was a true word. It was a valid word and a word that is noble and enduring. Nor do we idolize John Wesley and do we pick vigorously through his journal and his sermons to try to find some quaint and isolated opinion that we can suddenly spring on each other to show how Wesleyan we are and then beat each other on the heads with the fact that I am more Wesleyan than you. I have seen that kind of approach of trying to out-Wesley Wesley, and I think it vitiates the entire system. That's not what we're talking about tonight. Nor in his own day did Mr. Wesley intend that his preachers and his followers should reflect every personal opinion, but it is the great system of biblical interpretation to which we are committed this evening. You have to interpret Scripture somehow. I get very tried at those people who say, I don't follow Wesley. I'm just going to follow the Bible. 
and then they pack their Schofield Bibles and uh, they uh, come up with all kinds of interesting, twisted interpretations. Uh, you have to interpret Scripture, and if you interpret it honestly and fairly, as did Mr. Wesley, using the quadrilateral that Brother Smool mentioned a while ago, Scripture as it is interpreted by the ancient tradition of the church in all ages and in all times, not some exotic, silly, cultic tangent uh, that sounds very spiritual, but as the whole church through the centuries has given faithful witness because the scripture is not a private interpretation for merely some kind of Mary Baker Eddy cultic uh, performance that some prophet or prophetess gets ecstatic visions down in the cellar someplace because they ate too many turnips for supper. But uh, I am talking about the collective judgment of the church as it is applied in the interpreting of scripture, in the application of common sense, and that would help a lot of people if they would just apply some common sense to religion. It's too bad that religion and common sense ever parted company. Uh, but may I say this evening, common sense, the application of reason, and then Christian experience, and all of these criteria are all subordinate to the word of Scripture. But it is the word of God to which we make our final appeal. But everybody makes that claim, whether you're a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness. Uh, but how do we interpret the scripture? We have adopted the Wesleyan approach to scripture, the overarching system that deals with sin and with grace, of the magnanimity of God's kindly love toward us in Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here tonight. We're not uh, trying to bind anyone to Mr. Wesley's personal opinion about electricity or his personal opinions about uh, certain exotic ideas in politics or certain ideas uh, somewhere else. We're not here to try to uh, defend uh, certain things about his unhappy marital relationship even though his wife did drag him around the room by his own hair. Can you imagine the venerable founder of Methodism being dragged around the room by the locks of his hair? We're not here to defend all of that, but we are saying that John Wesley was a wise master craftsman and that the legacy of Wesleyan theology committed to us is a faithful and altogether reasonable application and interpretation of the Word of God. That John Wesley under God and his coadjutors, those men that God raised up in the 18th and 19th centuries, were men that were used by the Spirit to raise up the noblest and arguably at least the most far-reaching system of spiritual renewal since the days of the apostles. That is a legacy which I am most grateful for, and I believe that you are most grateful for. We're not trying to out-Wesley Wesley. We're not trying to bang people on the heads with exotic Wesleyan opinions about some obscure notion. But we're talking about the great themes, the great central principles to which you gave consent in your ordination vows, which I gave consent in my ordination vows. We are determined by the grace of God that that noble system shall not perish from the earth. And there is a renewed emphasis everywhere in Wesley. 
I think I read the other day that more books have been written about John Wesley than about any other Englishman. Everywhere there are renewed emphases on the great Wesleyan movement as a signpost for modern evangelicalism. And I think that somehow if we can ride that crest of interest, we have a very valid contribution to make because we are direct lineal descendants of those godly men and women who erected the system to which we give our faithful support under the grace of God. Tonight, my topic, as you know, is the means of grace. Now, maybe that doesn't sound exciting for an opening night. Certainly, when you talk about the means of grace, some people yawn and they lose interest. We know that somehow it deals with what someone has called the privileges of the sanctuary. We deal with the ordinance of God that are ordinarily offered within the church of God. And that doesn't sound very exciting to a lot of holiness people. The means of grace. What do you mean by the means of grace? Well, of course, we mean that Christ our Lord has established a church and that within that church he has established certain outward actions and signs and activities which if we exercise them in faith, the Holy Spirit channels grace to our believing heart. Now that sounds very methodical, and it sounds uh, very disciplined and very stodgy in some people's mind, and it really isn't the kind of a rallying, rallying topic for an opening night that sets people to skipping down the aisles. But maybe that's a part of our problem tonight, because in many places I think we have been guilty of setting aside the constituted, instituted means of grace that the scriptures plainly set before us. And instead, we have put great emphasis upon all kinds of highly emotionalized, sensationalized religion. And, you know, the kind of thing that really packs the house out and sets our feet to dancing. And at the same time, with our emphasis upon impressions and blessings, we have not had much to say, at least in many parts of our movement, on the methodical and disciplined and faithful use of the means of grace that Christ himself has appointed. Now far be it for me tonight to do anything to ever denigrate the mighty working of the Spirit. I believe in those gracious times of, uh, of the moving of the Spirit. I, I come from a free Methodist background and I can remember those seasons in my childhood uh, when uh, the mighty Spirit of God moved upon a mixed congregation. But I also believe that those times are not to be made a premium for their own self. It is always that God shall be glorified. I can remember hearing Bishop Fairbairn preach, one, uh, preach on many occasions, but I remember in his pulpit prayer where he asked, Oh God, we pray in this service not merely that we shall be blessed, but that rather thy name shall be glorified. Because it might be selfish merely for us to pray that we might be blessed, but rather that God shall be glorified. And of course, he is to bless his people if we get the uh, motion in the right direction. To some people, Christianity consists of three things, and they're all valid, and they all take their place in their proper uh, part in the church of God. 
to many of our people, if you had these three things, you had Christianity. Never mind about the incarnation of the Son of God or about the most beautiful doctrines of our faith. So long as you have one highly emotionalized religion that skips and hops and makes all kinds of displays of, of excitement. Secondly, if you have a strong emphasis upon external standards, and I believe in them, I am a conservative. And may I say this evening, all of these things take their place as the issue of a holy life. And they have to take their perspective there. And we're wrong when we begin to lose them, and it's a symptom that, may I say this evening, the heart of Christianity centers around our Lord Jesus Christ upon the objective facts of our redemption, that Christ is the incarnate God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that He lived here upon this earth, the most beautiful and winsome life that has ever been lived, utterly unselfish, giving Himself freely, loving righteousness, hating iniquity, reaching out in love to mankind. And then in the fullness of time, he laid down his life as a full and sufficient substitutionary sacrifice for human sin. Nor is that the end of the story, because we celebrate the empty tomb. We are people of the resurrection, that Jesus our Lord rose again in power and glory, that he ascended into heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for us. And so there are those who simply don't care much about hearing about that kind of thing. But so long as you have a highly emotionalized religion uh, with a lot of uh, skipping and prancing around, uh, provided uh, that there is a great emphasis upon external standards plus mystical impressions uh, so that you can go around saying, the Holy Ghost told me this and told me that. To them, that is the substance of Christianity. May I say they all have their valid points so far as the emphasis that we're talking about tonight, but they're all subsidiary to the mainstream. Uh, and we need desperately, and if there's anything, and I looked at the topic that was given to me, and I admit I've wrestled over it, because it's not an exciting topic to a lot of people. Uh, they think it's dry and methodical and stodgy and maybe even a little bit ritualistic when you come to talking about the sacraments at least, uh, because we hardly understand the language that our spiritual forebears used. Charles Wesley wrote more hymns about the holy sacrifice, as he called it, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, than anything else, and yet we don't sing any of them. The imagery and the metaphors of those hymns are strange to us. Uh, and it's not because we have ever really rejected it, but it's by default years and years of erosion, uh, even though the Lord Christ himself in all three of the synoptic gospels said, there is one way in which I want you to remember me, and that is by breaking the holy bread and pouring out the consecrated wine. Uh, yet we blissfully ignore those words, uh, even though the gospels themselves definitively tell us again and again that it's not by prayer meetings or by Sunday school or even by high-flying preaching or shouting sessions, but it is in the consecrated bread broken for us and in the wine that is poured out that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Now, did he or did he not? And yet we blissfully ignore the instituted means of grace because somehow that's not spiritual. Somehow that doesn't appeal to our sense of mystical, individualistic, personalistic religion. Uh, 
Yet may I say this evening, if we're Wesleyans, uh, we have a deep commitment to the heritage. And if there is anything I submit to you that we need among our people for the enrichment of our spiritual life, for the renewal of a depth of Christian stability among us, it is the objective, historical means of grace that are provided in the Word of God. Now, this may not set our feet to dancing. Uh, it may not set our toes to popping up and down. But I believe it will add a richness to our spiritual lives uh, that nothing else will. Certainly it was characteristic of early Methodism and of the holiness movement in its early days. The means of grace are a basic and integral, even a central part of Christianity. Our text declares that at the very origin of the church on the day of Pentecost that they continued steadfastly, first of all, in the apostles' doctrine. This is in the teaching of the Word of God. Secondly, they continued steadfastly, perseveringly in the fellowship of the apostles, in the communion of the saints, as the Apostles' Creed calls it, within the church. For may I say this evening, we need a tremendously renewed emphasis upon the doctrine of the visible church. We were talking in the car today. I grew up in a warm-hearted, organized church. And in recent years, the last 30 years has done a great deal to disrupt the sense of loyalty to the, the body of the church. And I understand where our first loyalties have to be. And may I say, once you break the bond of loyalty to the visible body, it's awfully hard to reestablish it. And Mr. Wesley said his schism is a terrible sin to break fellowship with a body of believers to which you have formerly been acquainted with and a part of, unless for the most compelling and the most demanding reasons of conscience. So they continued in the fellowship of, of the church and of the apostles. They continued in the breaking of bread. And from the days of the early church, from St. Christostom and all of the early fathers of the church, this is invariably interpreted as the celebration of the Lord's Supper. They continued steadfastly in the celebration of the Holy Eucharist. And the word Eucharist, of course, comes from the Greek word for thanksgiving. And it is the most ancient word for the Holy Communion. Uh, and they continued steadfastly. Now, nobody's shouting now. I understand that. Uh, but that is what the scriptures say. And if Mr. Wesley were here tonight, if there is anything he would have to say to us, is the loss of regular, faithful, sacramental worship among us. Amen. And I know who I'm talking to tonight. I'm one of you. I've been brought up in the movement. But I also know that even as a child, the doctrines were there. They weren't practiced very well. They're in your books. All of our standard writers teach what I'm saying tonight. Go to all of them. The more recent writers are saying the same thing. Read H. Orton Wiley, which has been used in many of our schools. Read Dr. Rob Staples from the Nazarene Theological Seminary. There is in in many parts of our movement a renewed interest in restoring among us what the early Wesleyans prized so deeply and that is regular Eucharistic worship not to detract from our evangelical emphasis but rather as an enriching complement uh, because really the early Wesleyans were evangelical sacramentalists uh, and they were sacramental evangelicals uh, they continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and in the breaking of bread in fellowship 
and in prayers. It is interesting, as Dr. Staples points out, that we have long preached about Pentecost, but we never have much to say about these words that immediately follow what happened on the day of Pentecost. That was a miraculous day. It was the chief birth date of the Christian church. It was the beginning of the new covenant. Uh, The kingdom of God had come. Uh, The church was being formed by the Holy Spirit, by our Lord Jesus who said, I will send him. And now from the right hand of the Father in his place as our mediatorial king, he sends the Holy Spirit in power and glory. And there on that day he gives birth to the Christian church. Peter's fiery sermon and we get very uh, rapturous about some of the events that take place on the day of Pentecost. Uh, The mighty sound, the rushing wind, uh, the cloven tongues of fire. We we talk about these things and the phenomena of Pentecost, uh, the mighty cleansing work of the Spirit and that is all well and good. But remember, the first thing they did after hearing Peter preach was to ask uh, What shall we do to be saved? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Of course, there again, baptism is one of the sacraments of the church that is terribly neglected among us. Uh, The early Methodists uh, emphasized strongly the apostolic emphasis uh, because the baptismal rite is the initiatory sacrament of the church. by which we are admitted into the communion of the visible church. Read the book of Acts. I don't know of any conversions that are anywhere recorded except baptism was immediately administered in the name of the Holy Trinity. Now, I know our predilections and our fears of formalism and ritualism, but what about our fears of ignoring the plain example of the apostles and the Word of God? We're talking about being Wesleyan tonight. Uh, The early Wesleyans uh, magnified the sacraments as vehicles of grace. Not that they were anything virtuous or meritorious in themselves, but that through the means of grace, prayer and scripture, the instituted means of grace, the holy sacraments, we reach out and we touch the hem of the master's garment by faith. It's not the uh, symbol itself. It's not the, the token itself. It's not the means of grace merely as an institution. But it is the means that Jesus himself instituted by which we reach out and touch our Lord. Now it's there in the book of God, and if you're Wesleyans, I I get very trying going across the country and see uh, our little cracker box churches like mine with Wesleyan out in front of it, uh, and yet the sacraments are never administered. Uh, They're almost mocked and made fun of and ridiculed. Um, We lost long ago the sacramental theology behind the actions. Um, And all we have left is when we do is a sort of baptistic idea that the sacraments are something that that we do as a nice little ceremony occasionally. So far as the Lord's Supper, we hold a funeral for Jesus about once a year and we we, uh, read the words and uh, we remember Jesus and we conjure up uh, holy memory and that's all right so far as it goes. But to the early Wesleyans, as to the New Testament, uh, the bread which we break, is it not a sharing of the body of Christ? 
the cup which we bless, is it not a sharing, a partaking of the blood of Christ? Uh, certainly not as the Romanists teach in some mysterious way that magically bread and wine cease to be bread and wine. Uh, we're not saying that at all. Uh, but neither can we empty the words of Jesus of their meaning. Uh, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. Uh, I heard Richard Wormbrand, and I'm getting away from my notes. Isn't that the way I always do? Uh, but I feel the fire waxing a little hot. Uh, can you imagine getting blessed on preaching on the Holy Eucharist? Uh, can you imagine getting blessed on preaching on the Blessed Sacrament? Uh, because that's what it is. It is the Blessed Sacrament uh, of the body and blood of Christ. Uh, and as Mr. Wesley taught, and as all the commentators teach, that in the early days of the church, the Lord's Supper was the great central rite of Christian worship. Uh, every Lord's Day they broke the bread and poured out the wine uh, every Lord's Day. And somebody says, you'll make it so common and ordinary. Nonsense, we've made it common and ordinary by our utter neglect of what God himself requires in the blessed scriptures that are set before us. Um, when I was in Wesley's Chapel a few years ago walking down the aisles I came upon the baptismal font uh, can you imagine that a baptismal font and I won't argue with anybody about modes and methods or how much water you want uh, the scripture doesn't tell us how much water you have to have any more than it tells you how much wine you have to drink in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper uh, have all of it you want uh, but may I say this evening, the early Methodists, of course, ordinarily baptized by effusion, as they talked about, uh, by pouring or by sprinkling, uh, because they said if uh, there was anything that was symbolic uh, of the pouring out of the Spirit, it was the pouring out of water, for the promise is, I will sprinkle pure water upon you, and uh, I will pour out the Spirit of grace upon you. Peter Cartwright loved to bait the Camelites uh, on this very area. Finally, he said one day, water, water, one would think the kingdom of heaven was an island, uh, and the only way to get there was by swimming. Uh, well, if you want to swim, I guess it's all right. I won't argue with anybody about the amount of water, but neither can you prove that uh, immersion is the only valid means uh, whereby uh, one could uh, be baptized. Uh, the day of Pentecost, it would have been a little hard to have usurped the city water supply to dunk all 3,000 of them there. But I'm not going to get into that. Don't you argue with me for a moment about immersion. Uh, but I want to say that uh, it's not the amount, but it is the sacramental token uh, by which our Lord uh, commanded this. And all of the New Testament speaks of the validity of the, of the sacramental means of grace uh, because they are federal rights. They are covenantal rights. Uh, by which uh, we enter into a renewed and deep and thorough relationship with our blessed Lord. Um, someplace along the line, we lost this emphasis, and I am appealing tonight for its recovery, not merely as empty ceremonies, but I am appealing to you tonight, as those of you who claim the Wesleyan heritage as your own, uh, to remember that Mr. Wesley urged every one of his elders every Lord's Day to celebrate the Lord's Supper Though I realize that that was not to be because of the primitive conditions on the American frontier. And I know we are not commanded how often uh, to celebrate the sacred rite. But I do know this, that baptism, the initiatory rite, is administered only once. 
You may think that you've been baptized two or three times, but you haven't. Dr. Adam Clark said it was sacrilege to talk about being baptized two or three times. You were baptized once and maybe dunked two or three more times, but you're only baptized once. It's a covenantal right. You're admitted to the exterior and external rights of the church. The door of the church is opened in baptism. And if you wander away and backslide, you don't have to be baptized over again. You did for some of our people. We'd have to have a bucket and a and a uh, dipper uh, to sprinkle them every time they uh, got healed from their backslidings. Listen, we may wander away from our covenant, but God is always faithful to His covenant. Uh, and if we leave the covenant, uh, when we come back to God, we don't make a new one. We simply uh, re-enter the covenant that we once had made, uh, and we renew the covenant of grace. Uh, the Lord's Supper is to be perpetually celebrated. Uh, Dr. Staples again says it is the uh, sacrament of sanctification uh, by which we are renewed daily and increasingly in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have six pages of notes tonight, and I'm really working in the introduction. Uh, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on some other things, because when it comes to the instituted means of grace, uh, the four that are mentioned here, uh, the, the area of prayer and the area of the Word of God, uh, those are called the universal means of grace, because all of the others have their efficacy and their validity, because they are used with prayer and with the Word of God. Um, the Lord's Supper we commemorate not because John Wesley or St. Thomas Aquinas or some other great scholar said we should, but because the Holy Scripture declares that in this way we remember Jesus. Prayer meetings are all right and Sunday school is fine, but it's not in Sunday school that we remember our dying Lord, but we remember Him at the Eucharistic altar, at the Lord's table, according to His own word and commandment. And there He says, I will meet you there. I will be there. For the Lord's Supper, as I said a while ago, is not merely a funeral for Jesus, but it is a present means of grace where our Lord Jesus appears to us mystically and sacramentally, as the old Methodist article of religion says. We come to the Lord's table and we receive Him there by faith in a heavenly and spiritual manner. But He is there truly under the tokens of bread and wine. We perceive that our Lord Jesus is present with us. Dr. William Burton Pope says, uh, In heaven he stands beside his altar. Uh, on earth he stands for us beside his table. And whenever I come by faith, I come to the heavenly banquet here on earth that he has prepared for me. Uh, I may not feel anything. I may not have any emotional stir. Uh, but I come knowing that according to his word and promise and the means of grace, uh, he will reveal himself in the sacramental means of grace. We have allowed ourselves to be stripped of this Wesleyan heritage. Uh, I don't mean anything bad against our Baptist brethren, but we have been, we have been uh, tremendously impacted by Baptist fundamentalism. What Martin Marty calls the Baptistification of Christianity. Uh, remember this this evening. Uh, we are Wesleyan sacramentalists. If we are true to our heritage. Uh, and that is the old articles of religion say, the sacraments are not merely the badges of a Christian man's profession. Baptism is not merely 
necessarily what we do. It is what God is doing. Uh, they are signs and seals of the covenant. Uh, every time I see the water poured out in holy baptism, the sparkling waters of baptism uh, remind me, first of all, that this is a holy sign, an acted out uh, object lesson uh, that is being done before me, reminding me that, that baptism mystically is associated with the washing away of sin in the New Testament. No one is preaching baptismal regeneration in the sense that water washes away sin. But nevertheless, the church has always held through the centuries that the baptism of believers is the mystical outward sign of our regeneration. And it is the old Wesleyan service. The old Wesleyan service for baptism. We pray for the baptismal waters to be consecrated for the mystical washing away of sin. Not that the waters do it, but if by faith and in the early church, as you read the records, apparently again and again in the moment of baptism, there were many whose faith reached out and in the moment of baptism, they were born again of the Spirit. Mr. Wesley taught the same thing again and again. You read the early church fathers. On one page, they are strongly evangelical. They believe in the new birth. You flip the page, and they're talking uh, about the mystical washing of regeneration in the baptismal waters. Uh, may I say this evening, uh, unless faith is involved, water is merely water, but water, pure water, administered according to Jesus' command uh, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy ghost uh, is Christian baptism. And that Christian baptism is first mentioned here in the words of our text tonight. Those 3,000 people were admitted to the visible church by means of their baptism. Uh, and so every time I see someone being baptized, uh, I know that God uh, is showing to me visibly by powerful symbols for uh, the washing uh, of pure and sparkling water of the mystical washing away of sin. Uh, that's the outward object lesson. Read all your standard writers. They all teach exactly what I'm preaching to you tonight. Uh, I'm not teaching heresy. I'm not preaching out of the cookbook or the almanac. Uh, May I say likewise this evening, uh, the sacraments are pledges. Uh, they are not only signs in the sense of outward active symbols, uh, but they are pledges. Uh, God is pledging to us. Uh, he is reminding us uh, that though we may be unfaithful, He is faithful. We are the children of His flock. We are His people. Um, I'm reminded of that again and again. Uh, and thereby, as I am reminded of that, God is assuring me uh, that he gives his grace to all of those who, through the means of grace, reach out in the way that he has appointed. Uh, the Lord's Supper, signs and seals of the covenant. Uh, Baptism takes the place of circumcision in the Old Testament. Uh, and again, all of our standard writers, and St. Paul himself speaks of baptism as the circumcision of Christ, not made with hands. Uh, and so the door of the church of the Old Testament was opened by circumcision. So the visible church, the doors are open under the new covenant uh, by the application of pure water in the name of the Father and of the Son uh, and of the Holy Spirit. 
And I don't want to get into any trouble tonight, and I'm sure I'm already into it with some of you. But our early forebears did not to quibble about even giving to their little children uh, the signs and seals of the covenant of divine grace. Uh, in fact, I want to tell you something tonight, and you may have to swallow hard on it, but Methodism began as a strong movement uh, in favor not only of the signs and seals of the sacraments, but actually in 1739, Mr. Wesley actually separated from the Moravians. He left the founder, he left uh, the Fetter Lane Society because they were saying, uh, we are too spiritual to need the means of grace. You don't need the Lord's Supper. You don't need the Bible. You ought to sit home and wait upon the Lord quietly. Mr. Wesley said, this is not Christianity. That's what he said about the Quakers. He knew that there were many godly Quakers uh, who loved God, and he certainly did not believe they were under condemnation because they were walking in all the light they had. But neither did he believe that Quakerism was full-orb Christianity but because it denied the sacramental rights. May I say this evening, if there are any of your brethren here who are among those movements who have denied the sacraments on theological grounds, I would advise you to investigate your ground. And if still, if you conscientiously walk in all the light and do what you believe to be the will of God, then uh, so be it with you. But we have not so learned Christ, those of us of Wesleyan heritage. Dr. Daniel Steele said about the Quakers, uh, and he said that the Lord's Supper, Daniel Steele, late 19th century American Methodism, that the Lord's Supper is the chief means of grace in the church. Did you hear that? Not your flowery sermon Sunday after morning. Uh, uh, not your foot-stomping exhortations at prayer meeting. Uh, Dr. Daniel Steele tells us that from the earliest days, from the apostles onward, the regular, consistent, and faithful celebration of the Lord's Supper was the chief means of grace in the church. He said of the Quakers, uh, God bless them. Uh, their mistake is a mistake of the head and not of the heart. Uh, may I say we all have a lot of mistakes in the head. Uh, amen. I think our dear brethren are wrong, but I'm not beating anybody over the head. But I am pleading with you to restore what I think is one of the richest blessings that God would restore to his church among his holiness people. A birthright that we have almost lost, and that is the federal covenantal signs of grace. The Lord's Supper, the signs of grace. I come to the holy table. Uh, I administer as a pastor, as pastors have always done. Uh, because may I say the Lord's Supper has always been the great remembrancer of Jesus. Uh, Christ crucified, who made atonement for human sin. Christ risen. Uh, Christ ascended. Christ pleading for me at the right hand of the Father. Uh, hallelujah tonight. Uh, and I come uh, to the Lord's table. Um, and I'm not merely coming uh, for a simple memorial service. Uh, we Wesleyans have not been so taught. Our, neither does the New Testament. Uh, as I said a while ago, we do not empty those words, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, and make them mean really nothing at all, uh, as some have done. Um, certainly we will not follow those, uh, the Romanists in their uh, teaching, uh, and also certain high church Anglicans uh, 
the body and blood of Christ are so present in the Eucharist that if you drop a bit of wine upon the floor, the floor tile has to be removed because that, is, uh, that ceases to be wine. We're not saying that at all. Bread is still bread. Wine is still wine. But in some way that we do not understand because there is mystery here. And when it comes to the sacraments, the word mystery can very well be applied. But in some way we are sharing, we are partaking, we are participating in the body and blood of Christ. I heard Richard Wormbrand, and I know he's a Lutheran, but I remember him saying, uh, one time I heard him speaking, talking about those years 14 feet below the ground in a communist prison cell in Romania, telling how, he said, we who were so isolated there were so hungry and thirsty to receive the sacrament of the Lord's body and blood. How long has it been since you were hungry and thirsty to receive the sacrament of the Lord's body and blood? Pastor Wormbrand said, uh, there they were. They had no means of communication except tapping out on the walls. Uh, but he said, there we were in our isolated prison cells uh, that we had learned to signal with one another through taps, uh, through a certain uh, sort of telegraphic means of communication. Um, and we tapped back and forth that somehow we isolated Christians wanted there to celebrate the Lord's body and blood crucified for us. Uh, he said, we were experiencing what you in America hardly ever experience, and that's a hunger for the body of Christ uh, and a thirst for the body of Christ in the Holy Sacrament. But then the question came, we have no bread, we have no wine, uh, and that certainly is Christ's institution. Uh, but if you have no bread, you have no wine, uh, the grace of God is not fettered by the means of grace. Uh, it flows freely. Uh, we're not saying that the means of grace are the only way by which grace is given. Uh, the means of grace are the normative means, uh, the instituted means, but God in many ways applies grace. Uh, we so hungered for the body and blood of Christ. We had no bread. We had no wine. And so he said, then I thought that God made the world of nothing. God suspended the world on nothing. And though we would use bread and wine if we had it, uh, according to the Savior's institution, uh, we will use what we have, and that is nothing. Uh, for if God had suspended the world upon nothing, uh, surely he will satisfy hungry hearts uh, who are hungering for his body and blood in the sacrament. Uh, and so there, 14 feet beneath a prison cell, uh, they tapped out the words of the old Eucharistic service. Uh, and there, 14 feet under the ground that night, with nothing, uh, they celebrated the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ. Uh, that doesn't mean that we celebrate it with nothing. Uh, and we do what we can. Uh, I have read the accounts during World War II in those communist prison camps, godly pastors uh, at the very risk of their lives as the, as the agents walk mar back and forth, the guards of the prison with fixed bayonets, uh, the very risk of their lives. They would get a bit of cracker and a bit of gooseberry or some other uh, bit of berries and they would uh, squeeze it out uh, and they're undercover uh, at the very risk of their lives to obey the blessed command of their Lord. And there they celebrated the Holy Eucharist. Uh, Robert Weber, one of the great sacramental writers of our own times, uh, thoroughly evangelical, says, when young men come to my co college office for uh, help and they're troubled, he says, I tell them to flee to the Eucharist. Uh, 
May I say tonight, do you know anything about fleeing to the Eucharist? Uh, as John Fletcher, as he fell, as he came down stumbling uh, from his pulpit the last Sunday, he ministered on this earth at the parish church in Madeley. He said, I will fall, I will fall upon the altar of God. Uh, and the altar of God, he meant the communion table. Uh, there where he dwells beneath the cherubim. Uh, there where angels and archangels look on, as Charles Wesley says, in rapt amazement, uh, we raise the sacred cup, we break the bread, uh, and we celebrate the word of God. And for the sacraments are not merely what we are doing, it is what God is doing. Um, in the Lord's Supper, uh, there is the acted uh, the acted object lesson of the broken bread, uh, speaking visibly to us of Christ's body, but also there is the poured out wine. And by wine, I don't worry. I'm talking about grape juice this evening. I'm not talking about Mogan David, so don't get, get worried. But the New Testament does say wine, whatever that means. You can argue about it. But I want to say this evening, the wine poured out is a visible symbol of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. But it's more than merely symbol. God is pledging to us. Every time the bread is broken, Jesus is saying, this is my body, which is now given for you. It's not merely something that happened 2,000 years ago. The cross is timeless. The atonement was offered uh, from the foundations of the world. Though in time uh, our Lord Jesus died 2,000 years ago, yet from all eternity the atoning work of Christ uh, was offered. Uh, the cross is timeless. Uh, and there's a real sense that at the Lord's table time disappears. Uh, we look back to Calvary. And in some strange way... Uh, as we remember Jesus, and the word there, remember, uh, means something more than some uh, historical event that somehow we are representing again uh, in a moment. We are at Calvary once more. Uh, we hear the clicking dice. Uh, we hear the snapping of the Roman guard. Uh, once more, we look up into the face of dying love, uh, and we cry out as Charles Wesley did, My Lord, my love is crucified, and time has slipped away, and I am at Calvary. That's not all. I'm also at the empty tomb that morning. Hallelujah. For may I say, we Christians, uh, as we celebrate the Eucharist, uh, remember that the early church celebrated the whole redemptive Paschal events. Uh, it was not merely the cross in isolation, but it was the whole matter of Christ's incarnation. God became one of us. Uh, he identified himself with us. Uh, God became one of us forever. Uh, he joined himself forever to our humanity. He is the head of a new race. Hallelujah this evening. Uh, and so this evening uh, in the Eucharist we celebrate his incarnation. We celebrate his life. It was all for us there at the lines of baptism uh, when he identified himself in the lines of baptism uh, for John to be baptized. Uh, he had no sins to wash away, but he was identifying with us uh, at every step. It was all for us. Uh, he died for us. He rose again for us. Uh, and he ascended into heaven for us. Um, and so this is mystic food. Uh, we come to the Lord's table and there he feeds us 
on the body and blood of Christ. Uh, do I need pardon? I flee to the Eucharist. May I say the early Methodists believe the Lord's Supper was both a converting and a confirming ordinance. In fact, John Wesley branded as heresy those who said that no one need come to the Eucharist unless they're in a saved and sanctified experience. He said the feast was for every hungry, yearning heart. And the old Methodist invitation was for ye that do earnestly and truly repent you of your sins. And there were hundreds of those early Methodists. And I'm not talking about whole hardened sinners. But I'm talking about people who had entered into a covenant with God. They were seeking God. But they had not yet the assurance of pardoning grace. Mr. Wesley said, wait upon him in all the means of grace. Pray and read the word. Hear the sermons. And appear at the Lord's table. And there were hundreds of them who were actually converted at the Lord's table. Converting ardence, and even Susanna Wesley herself uh, had not been taught to believe in the uh, inner witness of the Spirit. And who can deny that she had the faith at least of a servant, that godly matron uh, who poured out her tears in Epworth Parsonage uh, and who gave to us John and Charles Wesley. And yet she didn't know a thing about uh, the inner witness of the Spirit. She said of her own father, Dr. Annesley, he doubtless enjoyed it himself, but he apparently believed uh, that no one but merely the elect, those who lived the closest to God, uh, could ever know the sins were forgiven. Uh, but then after John and Charles issued uh, their wonderful message uh, uh, of the witness of the Spirit, uh, her faith looked up to Christ. Uh, and in a letter she described uh, how at the last Lord's Day, as she was kneeling at the Anglican communion rail, as my son-in-law Hall was delivering the great silver chalice, uh, she said, as he said the words of the ritual, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for you, she said, in that moment I felt the inward assurance that my sins were forgiven. Uh, say what you will tonight. Uh, the Holy Eucharist is a converting ordinance uh, to those who come lovingly, who come from hearts uh, that are reaching out in faith. It is a confirming ordinance uh, as we receive the body and blood of Christ. Uh, do I need pardon? Uh, yes, uh, I have a million mistakes and infirmities for I, which I need the continual uh, continual merit of Christ's blood. Uh, what do I do? I do many things, uh, but I also flee to the Eucharist for pardon and forgiveness. Uh, do I need comfort and grace? Uh, I flee to the Eucharist, uh, as Robert Weber has said. Uh, do I need the assurance that he will never abandon me? None of us here at times, uh, but what feel the frailty of the vessel? I flee to the Eucharist. And there I am assured of the signposts of heaven. My time has long since passed. I really didn't intend just to speak mostly about the Lord's Supper. But I did ask God before I ever came tonight that he would own his truth. And if there is anything true tonight, I believe what I preach to you is the truth. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. 
This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to lose the fire. I don't want to lose the fire.